Ah, yes, that's Rush Limbaugh's music. The iconic song by The Pretenders. Welcome to the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. Rush Limbaugh was my radio dad, and I'll explain that coming up. Also coming up on the podcast today, uh, where are your COVID bailout funds going anyway? I will talk to radio host in Seattle, Jason Rance, who's done a deep dive on where Washington State's money is going. And you have to know that's what's happening where you live. In Antifa versus Mike Strickland, the cops are put on the witness stand and we ask the question, where were you guys on July 7th, 2016? Why didn't you help? Mike Strickland. Get in touch with me on my eponymously named social sites at victoriataft.com, at victoriataft on MeWe, Minds, and those other sites by Zuckerberg and Dorsey. But now first up, it's time to get our man-made global warming and green energy update. And to do that, we go to Fox News's Tucker Carlson, who's talking right now with former Energy Secretary and Texas Governor Rick Perry from his home in Texas. Over to you, Tucker. Love Texas, don't want to attack Texas. On the other hand, the most basic responsibility of government, you'd think, is to keep the power on, especially when people need it to survive. They didn't. Why? Hmm. I I should say that Rick Perry is in Texas. It sounded like he was in space, but he's not. He's in Texas. He has no power. That's being run, I think, on a generator. He's proving the point that we're making. Speaking of bad weather, in Portland, Oregon, the scene of snow and ice storms in the past few days, the snow plows, which are in short supply, are being rationed. And they're being rationed in part due to equity. That's according to the Portland Bureau of Transportation Communications chief who said... Uh, that some roads are bigger, larger, wider, and some roads are more narrow. And the dangling conclusion left unsaid is, so therefore, it's an issue of equity as to whether or not certain roads will be plowed. I am not even making that up. Now, I tried to get some kind of response from the city of Portland. I called earlier in the week and asked, please uh, email the guy. I, you know, I, I tried to find out and you're not going to believe this. They did not actually call me back or uh, email me back more precisely. Yeah. It's, it's astonishing, right? Now, this is something that Rush Limbaugh would have mocked and highlighted And it's worth mocking and highlighting. There are stories like this from every American city where the do-gooders, the well-intentioned swells who lead the cities, who think they've gone to the best colleges and universities and are standing by to make sure that you are not allowed to make decisions on behalf of your own life because obviously they're smarter and better educated than you are. So therefore, that preempts any authority you might have over your own life. And it's something, as they say, Rush Limbaugh would have mocked. And it's something that happens in every American city. And I know that Rush Limbaugh would have mocked it because he used to do that kind of thing all the time. In fact, I've been watching him since I've been in my early days of radio. He was my radio dad, as I called him for a piece for PJ Media, and I wanted to read you some of it. Rush Limbaugh died of lung cancer this week. And 
it has just left a void in talk radio as we knew it would. However, I knew this day would come. And when he wasn't behind the golden EIB microphone for an extended period of time in the past couple of weeks, I knew it was coming soon. But I could not bring myself to think about talk radio without Rush Limbaugh. The world, not just terrestrial radio, is poor without him in it. And I continue on at uh, PJ Media in my column there. But at night, oh, at night, after Johnny Carson was over, my dad would open up the world of talk radio to our household. In my bedroom where I was supposed to be sleeping, I could hear the muffled voices of the pre-shock jock talkers out of San Francisco and Salt Lake and Denver. And sometimes if my dad was out of town, my mom would let me come into her room and we'd listen to Ira Blue from KGO Radio. When my sister won a transistor radio on a local kids show, she would listen to it under her covers at night. Radio was a mystery and a source of joy and entertainment. And later it became a place to listen to for me anyway, the best play-by-play announcers in the business paint a picture so that I could see a baseball game better than I could watch one on TV. And Rush Limbaugh, who'd shared those same experiences and had spent his early career getting hired and fired a lot while he was trying to be a top radio shock jock or DJ, he took all of those experiences, all of his delights, passions, interests, political beliefs, insatiable curiosity, cheeky sense of humor, and he spun all of those things into radio gold. And in the late 1980s, when AM radio talents were still trying to make compelling radio by spinning 45s or putting stuff in the cart machine that sounded way, way better on FM radio. They would read perfunctory weather reports and try to do news and programming under the equal time rule, which was impossible. Ronald Reagan partially deregulated the radio industry and allowed the other than late night hosts the ability to speak out a little. And Rush Limbaugh, then in Sacramento doing talk radio and coloring outside the lines a bit, was loosed. He single-handedly brought back the entire amplitude modulation radio spectrum, and he made it cool again, and he made it profitable again, which is more important to the suits up and counting the beans in the ivory towers. And suddenly, the brash, young Rush Limbaugh was appointment radio Every day on the West Coast, Rush was on from nine to noon. And if you were lucky enough to be on a station with Rush, if you were lucky and talented enough to be on after him, whoa, you were golden. What a lead in. He would uh, mock eco nuts with sound effects of chainsaws cutting down trees he used saucy songs to mock women's lib types. He dubbed the Eleanor Smeals of the country screamers and abortion at any cost types as feminazis. He was an early skeptic of man-made global warming and often had Dixie Lee Ray, a scientist and former governor of Washington on his show, to talk about it. She was, she was a skeptic as well. And he pulled off stunts such as a bake sale to call attention to political absurdities and inequality. 
Dan's baked sale. So dubbed because Dan's wife wouldn't let him spend twenty nine ninety five for Rush's newsletter, drew 35,000 people, and Rush Limbaugh came himself. And Dan was able to afford his Rush newsletter. I tried doing stuff like that on the radio in Portland, and I was always shut down because it was politically incorrect. I wanted to have a barbecue in front of a, a furrier who was being just absolutely hounded by the animal rights nuts that, that you know these are all the same precursors to the antifa people screaming shouting doing you know putting television sets in front with you know animals being uh, murdered and stuff like that in front of that window the guy was selling all kinds of stuff and they put him out of business in portland let him do it and i said i know let's just do a barbecue in front and really really get under their skin those animal rights and of course my boss said you know uh, we probably shouldn't do that well, uh, you know what? I was inspired to do stuff like that by Rush Limbaugh. People whispered in Rush Limbaugh's ear. Mark Levin, constitutional expert, climate experts, experts of all kinds would make sure that Rush got an earful of information on the latest crack pottery from the left. And that said, he also looked askance at the expert class of the we know better than you nabobs who sat in their fortress-like ivory towers of academia. AM radio stations, which had been losing steady ground to daytime TV and FM radio, were suddenly getting double-digit ratings in Rush Limbaugh's time slot. Rush blew the doors off the competition, I continue to write for PJ Media. He put the ideas through the crucible of his mind, added his spark, and produced a thick nugget of common sense. After Rush said something, you'd go, wow, I guess I never really thought of it that way before. And that's where I came in. Suddenly, there was room for someone like me. I had some experience. I had opinions, certainly. I knew how to chase them down to get the facts, and I was near a microphone. For more than 20 years, I held my own on talk shows in Portland and uh, San Diego, and I was able to do that and still do it on my own podcast. Rush Limbaugh hated podcasts. Oh, well, he hated Twitter, too, but that didn't stop him from ultimately getting on there and actually engaging. The one thing Rush Limbaugh taught me, a belief that I try to bear in mind and have varying degrees of success, was to keep laughing, keep pouring it on because you get, you're more impactful with laughter and humor. Just You just are. Other people will talk about Rush's classical liberalism, and it was. His conservatism would is classical liberalism. His well-deserved cultural icon status. And now we have a deep void left behind. They'll remember all of those things. But radio dad was Rush Limbaugh. He was my guy. He was the person who inspired me most to do what I've done on the air. He gave birth to thousands of people like us. And we will keep talking anyway, but in doing so, we will pay homage to Rush Limbaugh. He changed everything for me. So, as I ended it up, I say, God bless you and your golden EIB microphone, Rush, from which I'm sure you are broadcasting to the heavenly host. And to those who always mocked him for saying that he had talent on loan from God, you know and I know that he is in heaven and he is giving, I guess, God back his talents. <laughs> or maybe he's letting him use them still. I don't know. But anyway, what an amazing man. Generous to a fault, probably. Just a, an amazing man. So if you want to share those sentiments or see, see them, read them for yourself, go over to PJ Media. We'll have a link up on the show notes. Now, 
Let's go to another radio professional, Jason Rance from KTTH in Seattle, where I talked to him about the wild COVID bailout money and where it is going in Washington state and likely where you live too. Jason Rance, welcome to the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. I know time is short for you, but I have to tell folks that you have written a story about the COVID bailout funds in the state of Washington going to help people in this grave time when they can't work or find jobs or get out much to enjoy life again. But what you found was $12 million being divvied up by the Washington State Department of Commerce, but you had to be the right color and the right political bent to get them. Tell us, yeah, tell us what roles the politics and the race uh, play in getting COVID funds. It's just, it's so maddening because on its surface, this idea is certainly not objectionable. They decided over at Washington State uh, Department of Commerce that they were going to help out nonprofits that were struggling during COVID. And certainly there are a lot of really amazing nonprofits struggling during this pandemic. And so they came up with $12 million that came out of the CARES Act, so federal tax dollars, going into what's called the Washington Equity Relief Fund. But in order to qualify, you have to be led by and serve people of color and communities of color. So an example I've been using is if you are an organization that's run by a group of white women and you serve an entire community of homeless people in Seattle or Spokane and the Tri-Cities, you would not qualify for any kind of relief. Now, the way that this was being doled out was they had a group of reviewers, about a, I believe it was 112, who were hired to look over applications and essentially grade all of the applications. Now, the reviewers themselves were selected on the basis of race and, I suppose, unironically, had to go through anti-bias training as a part of this program. <laughs> so they looked over the applications and they made sure that the managers, the people who are running all these organizations, were actually serving the communities of color and were run by, by people of color. But they ended up giving money to some pretty radical political organizations, including Care of Washington, the Council on American-Islamic Relations. They had an $800,000 budget here in Washington state the previous year, so they would not normally, you wouldn't think that they would qualify, and yet somehow they did. They gave money to a group called Collective Justice, which actively lobbies light on crime legislation that's currently being debated right now in our state capitol. But the one that jumped out me the most was Bail Fund of Spokane. Mm. There's not a single document that was submitted to me by the Department of Commerce that described this organization as in need of financial help due to COVID. The only inference was that in the justification document, it called it a small startup program. That's demonstrably false. The Bail Fund is a national group that in 2018 had a $25 million budget and in 2019 had a $15 million budget. They might need some of the money, but let's be clear, this is not a small startup program. And when you look at the actual justification document that they provided, it was all about supporting the cause, which is to get rid of cash bail. 
Exactly. So there was also that one lobbying group that got the money. You referred to it, the Criminal Justice Project project or something. And they're actually being paid to lobby. Collective justice. Yeah. I mean, so it's a group within the Public Defenders Association. This is a group that actively tries to get criminals to not pay any kind of legal price for their crimes. They go out of their way to try to legalize basic crimes. And I understand that public defenders are lobbying on behalf of their clients, but they're going one step further in this point. I mean, they're sending people scripts to read to lawmakers to lobby on behalf of certain bills. There's a bill right now that's being discussed in Olympia that would, for an adult defendant, force a court to not look at that adult defendant's juvenile record when looking at sentencing. And so you wouldn't be able to take into account the track record of a criminal which I think is problematic. But but let, let's say you don't find it problematic. Let's say you, you like that idea. Okay, the, the nobility <laughs> of a cause is not one of the qualifications to get any of the funding. And I would argue, I would submit to you that, you know, if conservative groups, conservative nonprofits actively tried to lobby on behalf of bills to its membership, they would not be getting funds. And if they did from the state, or in this case, from the federal government through the state, it would be a significant deal. Is this the same group that went to the Seattle Public Defender's Office and got the prosecutors to ignore a particular judge or put in a ding on him so he couldn't hear any cases? The the parent group is the Public Defender's Association, yes. (laughs) Yeah, it's It's a radical group of ideologues who are in positions of power, who actively work with the Seattle, uh, uh, or excuse me, the King County Prosecutor's Office to circumvent the judicial system and go easy on criminals, prolific criminals. What does uh, CARE have that the American Legion does not? I looked at the list, the copious numbers of people and groups that did not get these funds that you provided in your fantastic story on My Northwest, Jason. And I saw uh, American Legion. I saw lots of Boys and Girls Clubs. I mean, what don't they have that CARE has? Uh, A leadership that is run by people of color uh, and politics that match. What's interesting about CARE is when looking over the documents, the reviewers actually said no to the funding originally based on the documents that were sent over to me. And I think that that was based on the fact that they had an $800,000 budget the previous year. This was all about trying to serve the nonprofits that are truly struggling. But something happened behind the scenes where either commerce or someone who was overseeing some of the reviewers stepped in and said, no, we're going to go ahead and give them the money anyway. I'm, I'm taking a deeper dive into that one because uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm not a fan of care. I, I find, especially locally, they've done fundraising for Ilhan Omar, who is an anti-Semitic congresswoman. As a Jew, I don't want my tax dollars going to a group that has had ties to uh, Hamas leaders and support of anti-Israel organizations. I just think it's pretty shady to give federal tax dollars, any tax dollars, to care or any group that is inherently political. It just seems wrong. Yeah, it does. And how do they help people uh, in COVID with these kinds of groups? I'm not entirely sure how well, that and, works. And to, to be fair, they never said that this was meant to help people deal with COVID. 
it's a it's a little bit tricky because when they originally talked about this, you could get the inference from some of the quotes in the press release announcing this fund that that's what it was. But when you go in and you actually look at some of the details of who is qualifying for this, they do say in some of the finer print, you just have to be a nonprofit that was impacted by COVID, not a nonprofit that is helping people impacted by COVID. Oh, so if my fundraising isn't good enough, then I'm going to go to the state with my handout, even though I may support Ilhan Omar and a bunch of anti-Semites and terrorist supporters. There you go. Uh, one more thing. COVID, uh, we've got more funds coming uh, in the Senate, the whole Congress. And I'm just wondering if this is something that you perceive to be like big grift like, let's say, global warming funding and all that stuff. I see this as a per- perpetual motion machine for these guys. I don't know if it's a grift per se, but I do think that a uh, an easy way to get people the help they need is to reopen the economy in a responsible way. And unfortunately, you still have governors choosing not to do that. I think here in Washington, in Oregon, you've had both Inslee and Brown just sort of drag their feet California the same way. The only time that they're moved is if you have a recall election, if you threaten to sue and you actually have a case, if you put enough pressure on the politicians who have the sway, that's when they start to move. I mean, when you look at the science and the data, And it very clearly justifies going in a certain direction and they're still saying no something else is at play here and and some of it is based in fear which i think all of us could have justified last march and april when we didn't know much about the coronavirus and i do think that we should give some level of understanding and deference to leaders who made decisions that in retrospect were not the right ones but at the time certainly seemed like the right ones But we are a year into this, and we know so much more about the coronavirus. But beyond that, we also have treatment for it. We have data about how it spreads and who is impacted the most. And instead of having honest conversations about that, we're told when we say that, oh, you're downplaying the seriousness of it. It's like, no, coronavirus is serious. I don't want coronavirus. I don't want any virus. I don't want anyone to have it. However, I do understand that we have way more information now than we did a year ago. We're just not acting like it. In Portland or Oregon, generally, the Department of Health Services or Human Services or whatever that runs the coronavirus money that comes from the feds gave money to Snack Block, which is a group which is explicit. Its explicit job is to give food and sucker to Antifa during riots. Oh, I believe it. I, I, I think <laughs> that you've got people in positions of power who will exploit just about anything. Do all people in power exploit these things? No. Do a lot of them do? Yes. And that's why it's important for us, you and me, and others in media to point a spotlight when it happens. Because I do think that the larger the spotlight on this stuff, the less likely it is for it to happen in the future. The question is, can enough members of the media actually do that? And as of right now, for the most part, the answer is is no, unfortunately. No one's picking up this CARES Act Washington funding story. They, they put out, you know, I, I will normally pat myself on the back for all the work that I do. As much as this story took me about a month and a half, two months to actually dig into. Wow. I, I found this because they put out a press release bragging about <laughs> what they did. 
I didn't. I didn't have to. I didn't come up on this because I was doing like the nerdy behind the scenes boring work of going through a public uh, records request. They put out a press release. No one else is talking about this except for me, you, and of course Fox News. I found out about the snack block thing in a comment on a YouTube video. <laughs> it's insane. It's insane. Okay, one last thing. You talk about the reviewers' bias ensures inequitable results, but. It's actually more explicit than that. Even the people of color had to go to woke school. So there was an uh, there was a preordained outcome for these funds. Yes, I think that that was the intent. And again, they don't hide the intent. That's the thing. They, they, they don't see anything wrong with judging groups and people by their skin color and their politics. And that's the problem with the Pacific Northwest and really with the general direction of the Democratic party. We've gone really sort of full circle. We went from a position of basically saying, we don't want to judge people by skin color. We want to judge people by the content of their character. Well, we've reversed course. Now we're doing the exact opposite. It's true. Jason Rance, thanks for coming on the Adult in the Room podcast. Thank you for having me. Remember to subscribe and give a five-star rating and great comments to help us with the algorithm game. You know, there are people who downgrade this on purpose because they hate my politics and they hate the fact that I go after Antifa so you can figure out who's doing it. But just give a five-star rating if you would, please. Give me a great review. Just uh, Even if you hate it, just give me a great review because we're just playing the algorithm game here. You know eventually I'm going to say something you agree with, so just play along, shall we? Okay, listen up. You can do the ratings on Apple Podcasts because those of you guys doing it, she said. Put that over here. And, of course, this program is heard on all of your podcast outlets from Spotify, Apple Podcast, and our sponsors at Anchor and Google Podcast, and everybody in between. So please download, subscribe, rate highly, and give me a great review. And... Now a little of Rush Limbaugh's music to listen to before we get to the latest installment of Antifa versus Mike Strickland, an exceptionally good installment this week. The song, of course, that Rush Limbaugh has used for, gosh, years for his intro and outro music is My City Was Gone by The Pretenders. Enjoy it.
until the rain poured Dripping off the building and hitting the concrete floor Searching for my soulmate In the city of the roses Everybody's showing love But my heart stays frozen I just want to be chosen To be the single-handed reason That you wake up in the morning I think about you when I'm all alone And I don't know if I can make it through this on my own Before the nightly riots we've seen in the news There was one case The first case The case of Mike Strickland now at noon, another court appearance today for the man caught on camera waving a gun at protesters in Portland last month. And now he faces a lot more charges. Michael Strickland faces 21 counts connected to that incident. He was a journalist who was beaten by Antifa and Black Lives Matter protesters. And he defended himself from the mob with his legal gun. And not a shot was fired. Our position hasn't changed. Our client's position has not changed. That he is not guilty, that he was using the um, weapon to protect himself, and he was doing so within his rights. The only one hurt that day in July of 2016 was Mike Strickland. And the only one punished was Mike Strickland, the victim. I'm of the firm and steadfast opinion that when they come for Strickland's rights, they're coming for mine next. See, Antifa says it's anti-fascist, but Antifa is really anti-First Amendment. It's going back to the street violence of the 1920s and 1930s as a technique and a tactic. And the court system doesn't realize it's happening. This is the story of Mike Strickland. Ever since Mike Strickland pulled his gun to save himself from an advancing mob at a Don't Shoot Portland Black Lives Matter protest in 2016... He's had one question. Where were the cops? Where were they when the mob conspired to beat him out of the protest? Where were they when the Black Bloc Antifa mob surrounded him, roughed him up, screamed incendiary epithets at him in an emotionally revved up crowd and came back to finally do what? Beat him some more? Apply a well-placed haymaker to the head? Get him down and finish the job? Make it instead of 10 on 1, 20 on 1, 30 on 1, make it a mass brawl? Where were they as Strickland pulled out his weapon to stop the onslaught? Or when he was backed up the street by a Black Panther who just a short time before announced to protesters that when he walked, he walked in violence and could bust a cap in the cops? I promise you! If they go about they burning of, of whatever they said you're doing, you pull your piss out and you fucking bust at You pull your piss out and you bust at Because at the end of the day, it's going to be you against them. When we do, when we move with the Panthers, trust me, when you see me move, I'm moving in violence. Now stop clapping. Where were the cops? They were there. In the crowd. Watching. They were also four blocks away in a parking garage, waiting to be called in case of unrest. Simply standing by, waiting for the unrest by the group whose leader later proclaimed that there's no such thing as a peaceful protest. Before the prosecution rested its case in chief against Mike Strickland, the state called some of the police officers from the Portland Police Bureau who were around that day. They explained their reactions to the incident between the Black Bloc outfitted Antifa characters who twice tried to throw Strickland out from the protest. Officer Joshua Sparks was in the crowd. He wore plain clothes. 
He testified that he didn't see any uniforms in the protest. Police officers. This was 2016, remember, before Antifa, BLM began their all-out assault on cops all the time, before trying to blind them with lasers, attempting to murder them by blocking exit and setting buildings on fire with cops inside. Sparks said he didn't see much. He didn't see Strickland pull the gun. He didn't see the attack. He just saw Strickland retreating up the street as he shadowed the videographer. He was questioned by the Multnomah County Deputy DA, Kate Molina. As you're observing him to make his way up Main Street, are you still positioned up at the top of 4th and Main? Um, in that area, I kind of stayed on 4th um, and just kind of uh, and, and shadowed, shadowed him. Okay. As you um, were observing him walk his way up 4th, how was he walking? Um... Uh, if I remember correctly, he was kind of backpedaling. Um, every now and then, his hand would go back to the to his holstered gun. Um, at one point, I watched him as he he looked like he was trying to seat the magazine to his gun, so he's hitting the back of the magazine to his gun to seat it. Um, yeah, and then eventually, when he got to to Third Avenue and he started mush, moving north towards Salmon Street, um, he concealed his gun again, and that's when he was eventually contacted. When you think he was trying to seat his gun, do this motion. So if, you're gonna, if your gun is holstered in your holster uh, and you want to put a magazine in it um, and make sure it's ready to fire and functioning, um, you seat your gun so, or you seat the magazine in your gun. So you just place the magazine in your gun and a lot of times you slap the back of it just to make sure it's seated in there properly. So when you pull your gun out, it won't fall. So what was your impression of what you were observing and doing? Yes, ma'am. Later in cross-examination by Strickland attorney Jason Short, though it is hard to hear, Short asked, where were the cops? Were there any Not any that I saw. Were there any within the crowd? No. Mark, you? Uh, not that I saw. And is, that would be something that would have been popular. More than likely, yes. Did you ever see Mr. Strickland pull it off his firearm? Um, or take it out of the holster? No, sir. I asked Strickland about it in 2020. They never helped you. He never came to my aid. It turns out he's just monitoring the whole time and communicating back to the uh, command incident center. Uh, The description of the perp, me at that time, and and where I am and, and, and what's going on. He never tried to intervene with the mob. In fact, at one point, so I mentioned the guy who had snuck up around my back and shoved me as after I had drawn the gun a couple minutes afterwards. In his police report, he refers to this guy as you know an unknown subject. Or, what does he say? Uh, something like, uh, at one point, Strickland leveled his monopod at an unknown subject. But he does not explain that that guy had shoved me in the back. And he's not an unknown suspect. His name is uh, uh, Greg Lacus, I believe it is. And he has also been in and out of jail 20, 30 times, as I recall, over the past few years for drug crimes, which is the division that Brandon Combs himself works in. Four or so blocks away from where the estimated 2,000-person loud and, now we know, violent protest was taking place, parked in a riot van 
were 12 to 16 Portland police officers dressed in their riot gear and waiting for something to do. Under the penalty of perjury, do you solemnly swear or affirm that the testimony about to give in this matter will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Okay. Please have a seat. State your full name and spell your last name. Okay. It's Timothy Larson, T I M O T H Y L A R S E N. Go ahead. Good afternoon. Since December 8th, 2011. And were you working on July 7th of 2016? Yes, I was. Did you end up getting involved with a demonstration that was happening in downtown Portland that day? I was. And what was your specific role or assignment in regards to the I'm a member of our rapid response team, or RRT, which we do a lot of crowd management and protest work related work. And I was assigned to that squad that day. And where was your squad assigned to go initially? Uh, initially, we were first at Jeff, first and Jeff in the secure parking area, uh, just waiting to see where we needed to go next. Um. That day or in, in general? I, I couldn't give you an exact number, or, uh, but I would say probably between 12 and 16. No uniforms in the crowd. The rest were in a parking garage about four blocks away, and there was no built-in visual disincentive to commit acts of violence. Mike Strickland says if the police had been there, he would not have been beaten, and he'd still be doing what he used to do video protests in Portland for his YouTube channel, Laughing at Liberals. This marked one of the first times that the Portland Police Bureau began taking a hands-off approach to protesters. It was the beginning of the effort to keep a low profile so as not to anger the cop haters in the Portland professional protester crowd in the streets and keep the ever-present cop watchers and oversight boards off their backs. In 2011, the Justice Department put Portland under a microscope, as it had been doing with other police agencies across the country. It was the same year that hundreds of protesters occupied two city blocks in front of City Hall. They called themselves Occupy Portland. A 14-month-long federal investigation found, quoting, that most uses of force by PPB officers... Portland Police Bureau officers were lawful and reasonable. Now, you would think those were good marks, but the report also imagined, opined, there would be, quote, reasonable cause to believe that PPB engages in a pattern or practice of excessive force in violation of the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and the Violent Crime and Control Enforcement Act of 1994 in certain contexts. Put another way, the Obama administration found the Bureau was good. But if Portland would allow its police bureau to come under the auspices of the federal government, the federal government would not sue them. As Acting Assistant Attorney General Molly Moran for the Civil Rights Division put it in a press release, the Fed's applauded the total capitulation by Portland. 
quoting, We applaud the city's efforts to implement portions of the settlement agreements during the pendency of litigation. We are pleased to provide the court information about reforms through ongoing periodic hearings, and we are appreciative of the continued collaboration with the Albina Ministerial Coalition and the participation of the police union to resolve these issues to enable the entry of the settlement agreement. The understanding set up another police oversight board, making a total of three for the Rose City. In 2014, 20 days after the Michael Brown shooting and subsequent riots in Ferguson, Missouri, the Portland Police Bureau, at the behest of a black pastors group, the Alpina Ministerial Alliance, officially entered into the MOU, the Memorandum of Understanding, with the blessing of a federal judge. They put the Bureau on the altar of the feds instead of fighting a threatened, though not filed, lawsuit by the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ of the Obama administration. As we've seen in the intervening years, out-of-control protesters have blocked streets, vandalized homes and businesses, blocked the airport traffic, blocked freeways, committed acts of arson, bombings, intimidation, and mayhem on a regular basis. This new hands-off police activity only added fuel to the fire. During the 120 nights of terror by the fire setters, rioters, and black shirts of Antifa and Black Lives Matter in 2020, angry Portlanders demanded police do something to save the city. In September 2021, the Trump administration, DOJ, declared Portland, Seattle, and New York City as, quote, jurisdictions permitting violence and destruction of property because they permitted anarchy, violence, and destruction in American cities. Then, Attorney General Bill Barr cited the riots and mayhem for making the declaration, but also said there were other reasons for putting Portland under a microscope by the feds again. For example, quote, whether a jurisdiction forbids the police force from intervening to restore order amid widespread or sustained violence or destruction, whether a jurisdiction has withdrawn law enforcement protection from a particular area or structure, whether a jurisdiction disempowers or defunds police departments. Portland was under scrutiny for all of those things, things that were planned and put into effect under the Obama administration in 2014. By 2016, it was in full implementation. And at the time, Strickland had been rushed, roughed up, and denied his rights by the protesters. There was an explicit decision not to be in the crowd to protect him and help him. Strickland only found out that later in a police report, there was another police officer who saw his troubles that day, saw him draw on the advancing mob and almost shot him. Going back and looking at the uh, police report there, he, he's writing in there how he was ready to draw down on me and engage me. Had the angles been slightly different or whatever, uh, he would have done that. Now, his his role at this thing was supposed to be just communicating back to uh, the command center what was going on. Um, it, it's just scary to think, you know, had he jumped out of the crowd claiming to be a police officer, drawing a gun on me, with no uniform, no badge, 
I would have had no reason to believe that he was actually a police officer. Here, here, I would have just assumed he was some kind of protester. I would have ended up engaging him right back. And I was actually practicing to pass the same qualifications he can pass. So I'm good with that particular gun from the same distances that he qualifies for. So he made the very right decision of choosing to not engage me at that moment, because otherwise we probably both would have been dead. And there could very well have been a lot of other people dead, too. So I'm very thankful that he made the decision to not try to shoot me. Was it reasonable for Mike Strickland to feel threatened that day? Next time on Antifa versus Mike Strickland on the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. This week's episode of the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft is brought to you by VictoriaTaft.com. Editing, mastering, advertising, technical support, and understanding for the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft is by 1A Cast. The music is gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for the case of Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by RC, and it is used by permission. Find RC on all social sites at Raps by RC. Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Instagram at Raps by RC. Imaging for the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft is by 1A Cast. Logo by Hageman Creative. Find him on Instagram. Photo of Victoria Taft is by Hilly Collective. The Adult in the Room podcast is produced by Flamingo Road Studios. All rights reserved. <laughs>